We left Joseph in prison last week. At the end of last week's lesson, we left him in prison, accused of Potiphar's wife, uh, uh, by Potiphar's wife of committing a, a lewd act, and, and yet we know he was completely innocent of all charges against him. And in fact, in prison where he was, in, in, according to Genesis 40:15, he's, he's in a dungeon, as the NIV translates it, <clears throat> which tells us he's back in a pit again. Only now, instead of a pit th uh, thrown into a pit by his brothers, now he's at the bottom of, of an Egyptian pit. So he, he's starting all over again. Now, as this, at this moment here, uh, as we read, we're going to be in chapter the end of chapter 39 and, the, and looking at chapter 40. The, we ask ourselves, how old is Joseph at this point in time? Now, the truth is we don't know. No one knows for sure. We know how old he was when the story started. We know how old he is at the end of the story, but we don't know at this point in time because we, we aren't told how much time he spent in Potiphar's house before all those events took place. And we're not told how long he was in prison before the events of chapter 40 take place. But more than likely, he's probably in his mid to late 20s by this point in time. But I think that's a, that's a good question. But I think the bigger question is where was God? Where was God? You know, we can see God in the good things, and, and many times we can even see Him in the questionable thing. excuse me, the questionable things. But where is God when everything is unfair? Where is God when the, when the dungeon experience occurs? Does, does His silence mean He's absent? Well, the good news is we're not left to wonder. Read with me in Genesis 39, beginning in verse 21. <clears throat> But the Lord was, was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So twice in that short little passage, where it says the Lord was with Joseph. So that's where God was. He, he was right there. He never left. He never left. He was with Joseph. And not only that, but he did for Joseph in prison what he had done before. He gave him favor in the eyes of other. And Joseph began to see the hand of God in, in this prison experience. And the, the fact, uh, however, the fact that the Lord was with him shows us at what he's going through here. It shows us that the fact that the Lord was with him does not serve as a guarantee that life would go swimmingly. The fact that the Lord was with him did not mean that his life was going to go easy or it would be a piece of cake. Joseph was in prison and the Lord was with him. It was with him, but that, that did not mean immediate or even rapid release. We don't know how long he was there, but he was there for an extended period of time. What it did mean was that God had not forgotten Joseph and that God was still involved in his life. Joseph was part of a, of a much bigger story than he could possibly have imagined or even appreciated at this stage. The dreams that he had had about his family bowing down to him, he never dreamed that he would be in a position of power where there would be hundreds of thousands of people bowing down to him. He, he couldn't imagine, not only that, but he couldn't imagine that he was going to be used by God to preserve the nation of Israel and thereby preserve the line of the seed project that the Messiah would eventually come because he was there 
to do what needed to be done. Because if Joseph hadn't been there, if the family had died off from starvation during the famine that come, the line of Jesus is dead. So this is a big moment that Joseph can't even begin to grasp. Uh, but, but I think what we know, because we read it, and Joseph was learning, was that his prison experience was, was really just a necessary part of his training to fulfill a, a central role in God's purposes for his people, for the world at large, and for even for us today. All of these experiences that Joseph were going, was going through, were, they were training Joseph. And not only were they training Joseph, but all of these events were, that were happening, and this is a very, very difficult thing, for us to, to receive in our lives sometimes. But all of those things that were taking place were putting Joseph, it was putting Joseph in the right place at the right time to be able to fulfill God's plan and God's promise in Joseph's life. In, in his short life, he had already faced many, many challenges, but through them all, we understand that God was making him to be the man that he would use, the man that he could use in a really marvelous way in the future. Now, the thing is, God's training ground can be difficult at times. This is what we all have to understand in our lives as well. Yet we see in Joseph a, a wonderful example of God's ability, excuse me, God's ability to bring good out of what we, what we would consider to be bad. Uh, although Joseph's life was, was not going well, at least from a human perspective. If you were looking, if you were Joseph at that point in your life, if you were sitting down and evaluating your life, you would think to yourself, yeah, you know, my life really isn't going very well. This is not at all how I envision things going. I never dreamed that I'd be in a foreign land in a prison for something I didn't do after being sold into slavery for my brothers. My life is not going very well. And I think uh, uh, that, that we would look at that and, and it'd be easy for us to, to, to have a bad attitude. But the thing about Joseph was, Every place we read, his attitude was right. His heart was in the right place. Too often, what we do is we fall into the trap of blaming others, or we blame the crisis at hand, or we blame the circumstances for our poor attitude. You know, don't we do that? I mean, how many of you have ever heard, you don't have to say if you said it, but maybe you've heard somebody say, you know, well, that person made me so mad. Well, no, they, nobody can make you anything. You chose to be angry in response to what they did. Uh, and it may be a natural response, but, it, but, it's, but it, it's realizing that, that I can't blame other people for my failures. I can't blame my circumstances and say, well, I only stole, you know, because, uh, you know, I was born in such a poor family or whatever. Uh, but it was not so with Joseph. Uh, you know, prison, generally speaking, is not a pleasant experience in any country or in, or any age. And it was, you go in, in uh, countries like that in that day and age, it was even worse than we could possibly imagine. It had nothing, no similarity whatsoever to today's, uh, you know, what some people call country club prisons that people are in. But the, but, but the thing is, this is where God had allowed Joseph to be placed. Even though the sentence was unjust, even though it was unfair, this is where God had him for training, but also because that's where he needed to be to be able to take the next step that God had planned. So, so false accusations put Joseph in prison, but it was the Lord who stayed near to him and nurtured his soul while he was there. And as a result, we're told Joseph found favor in the eyes of the keeper of the prison, what we might call the prison warden. 
And, and he, he found favor in the eyes of the keeper of the prison, prison to the point where the man trusted Joseph so much that he placed him, he placed Joseph in charge of running the prison, which is a very surprising position for an inmate to be given. You know, it's just a very unusual thing. But the warden trusted him. He respected Joseph so much that it says that he paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. You know, in our lives, when a dungeon experience comes, the, the quickest and easiest response is often to feel that you've been forgotten by God. How many of you remember the old comic uh, Ziggy? Anybody remember Ziggy? Yeah, only people that are a little bit older remember Ziggy. But there was one uh, that showed Ziggy standing on a mountainside and he was staring far above him and the sky in the background is dark and there's just one lonely cloud up there. And, and in the cartoon, Ziggy is yelling out, have I been put, been put on hold for the rest of my life? You felt that, haven't you? I know I have at times. We cry out. And nothing comes in return. We don't hear the voice of God. We don't get the answer. We don't, we're confused at the moment. The silence of God at that time confuses us. And, but you know what? It's in moments like that that we have to remember the words of Jesus when he said in Matthew 28, 20, be sure of this. Be sure of this. Be sure of this. I am with you always, even at the end of the age. Even in, the, even in the dungeon experiences of life, we remember the words of Jesus, and then we also remember what we learned from the life of Joseph, that we are not, in those moments, in those dungeon experiences, we are not abandoned in our pain and in our suffering. God is there with us. Even when God seems to be silent and everything seems to be continually going wrong. Have you ever had those times in your life when it seems like, Everything goes wrong and you, and you think nothing else can go wrong and you soon correct it and you realize, oh, I guess I was wrong. Something else can go wrong. Even in those moments when God seems to be silent and life seems to be falling apart, he is right there. He is working. He's doing things that we can't see and understand. Joseph could not see and could not understand what God was actually trying to do in his life. But he is there fulfilling his plan in us. And he is fulfilling his plan through us. And he's weaving together a tapestry that will eventually make sense to us. Although it may not even make sense in this lifetime. It may not make sense until we're there and see, his, see what he has done in, in glory. But he is always there. He's always there. Well, the next significant thing that happened in the drama of, of, for Joseph was the arrival in the prison of two special prisoners from Pharaoh's entourage. Verse 1 of chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them and they, con they continued for some time in custody. So, it seems as if there was some sort of brouhaha that involving the cupbearer and the baker that really provoked Pharaoh to rage. They had offended their master. We don't know what they did. We're not told what their offense was, but whatever the charge 
was against them, they were placed in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. Now let me, as a, uh, something here I want you to think about. I want to ask you a question because we're, we're told, said something there and it's very easy to read past it and miss it. Who was the captain of the guard? We know it from previous chapters. It was Potiphar. Did you ever catch that before? That it says there that, that he was put in, in, in prison. That he says he was put him in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And, and so Potiphar, he was the captain of the guard. He was the chief protector of, of Pharaoh. So he was running the prison there. And it was there, uh, you know, on his property and that sort of thing. And so this is where he put Joseph. So I think I, I bring that up because it, it, it's, it, we see that Potiphar is still very much involved in Joseph's life and his, in, his, in his fate. And we're told specifically that the captain of the guard, who would be Potiphar, assigned Joseph to attend to these two prisoners personally probably with the instructions to observe them carefully, try to find out what exactly what they're guilty of, what they've done, what you get. So this information can be reported to, to Pharaoh. Potiphar was still in control. And the fact that he did not have Joseph killed and that here he personally assigned these men to Joseph's care may be yet another line of evidence that Potiphar was not totally convinced of his wife's charges. So, I just find that very interesting when we see the, the, the captain of the guard. By the way, anybody remember uh, what, uh, what the literal translation of the captain of the guard was? Chief Butcher, right. Which, by the way, now we're going to go by the assumption that when it talks about the, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, that, that they were the actual household chores. But there is a possibility that these were the types of of phrases that were used for different governmental positions. So the chief butcher was a captain of the guard. The chief cupbearer may have been, may have been involved in something else, but uh, the chief baker may have been something else, but that's a possibility. But we're going to go on the assumption that it, that it's cupbearer and the baker uh, tonight in our study. So um, these two men, the cupbearer and the baker had tremendous responsibility in Pharaoh's court. You know, palace intrigue and assassination attempts, they are not new occurrences in human history. These men had to ensure that, that both what the king of Egypt ate and what he drank were, were not only pleasing to his palate, but they had to make sure that it was safe for him, safe for his health. And a cupbearer particularly. Now, we don't know exactly. We don't know everything, even, you know, as the baker, as somebody in the kitchen we don't know every, all the, the, the uh, responsibilities that would, that would entail, but we know a little more about the role of the cupbearer because of other places in history and other places in the Bible. But uh, the cupbearer was a person who tasted the wine and the food of the king before he ate or drank. And that way, if it was poisoned, it was so long cupbearer and long live Pharaoh, right? And so uh, he, he, would, he would also... As the cupbearer, he would taste it. He would not allow poorly prepared food to be served to the Pharaoh since he was responsible for watching Pharaoh's diet. And this typically, with, with a cupbearer and a king, typically led to a very close relationship, a relationship of trust between the two. And, and often the king of the land would con confide in the cupbearer 
And the cupbearer would actually even serve as an unofficial advisor to the king very often. If you, if you recall Nehemiah, if you read the Nehemiah's story later in the, in the Old Testament, we're told that he was the cupbearer to the king of his day. And he had a very close personal relationship with him. And in many ways, the cupbearer was the most trusted man of the court because he was one who was putting his life on the line every day to make sure the king stayed alive. And if that trust was ever broken, very serious consequences followed. Well, something like that must have happened. We don't know what happened, but the cupbearer to Pharaoh, it landed in jail, and as did the, the king's baker. Now, as I said, the specifics of what had happened to bring about this falling out and this punishment, we're never told. All we know is that they committed some offense against Pharaoh, and, and he was furious with them. Now, it very well may have been related to, to the food because their jobs were definitely interrelated. If the baker was making the food and the cupbearer was tasting the food, it may have been something that was going on there, and, uh, and maybe Pharaoh didn't know who did what or, or whatever was going on, but, but they're both thrown in jail. Whatever it was, Pharaoh was so angry that he, he just said, get out of my sight, and he had them both thrown in jail. Now, here's the beauty. Because God's ways are so deep and so profound, it just, quote unquote, happened to be in the same jail that Joseph was in which he was imprisoned. What was happening here? God was bringing these two men into the life of Joseph for a very important and very specific reason. We know that with God, there are no consequences. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by luck. So it's, it's no surprise to us to see when we read the story later on, to see that one of these men is later used by God in the fulfillment of his purposes. One of these men is going to be used by God to get Joseph to that place of influence and power that God has planned for him. And, and, and not only the fulfillment for his, his purposes for Joseph, but in, even in an in a even greater way for the people of Israel and for the surrounding nations, for the world, really. So, you know, I mean, surely this cupbearer had no inkling that we would be standing here in 2023 still talking about him. You know, and that he would be discussed for centuries. Well, let's read what happened. Verse 5. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So here we are, Joseph one day, he gets up in the morning and he notices that the cupbearer and the baker seem dejected. They're all out of sorts and he asks them why. He, he noticed that the cupbearer and the baker were both sad. There was something wrong. And that alone already tells us something impressive about his state of mind. Because, you know, uh, one can easily imagine that many of us, if we had been as badly treated as Joseph had been, we, we might well have given in to the destructive emotions of self-pity and bitterness and anger because of our own situation. And, and we would never have noticed something as marginal as sad faces on a couple of prisoners. I mean, is it really that remarkable that a person 
would be sad and, and look dejected after being thrown into prison. However, th this sadness, apparently the troubling of their spirits was something distinct, something different from the norm uh, that's seen in such a place. And, and Joseph, even with everything going on in his life, he was both attentive and compassionate. I, I, I guarantee you his job description surely did not include rid prisoners of all sadness. This is not something he's doing because he has to. This is something he sees and he's concerned about these two men. Yet, yet Joseph, he, he showed a genuine care, a genuine interest, and he asked them, why are your faces downcast today? And that, that's just amazing to me because if, if anybody, if anybody in that prison ought to have a sad face, it ought to have been Joseph. His plight was much worse than theirs. I mean, they, they were there on a whim of Pharaoh and, and, and surely would not be there forever. But Joseph had been accused by the chief executioner's wife and didn't know if he'd ever see the light of day. However, in spite of his own circumstances, Joseph noticed the plight of these two men. You know, here's the thing. When your heart is right, even though the bottom may have dropped out of your own life, it's remarkable how sensitive you can be to someone else in need. In fact, I believe, I believe that it's in those moments that we can be the most sensitive to the pain of people around us and we can be the most useful in the hands of God to touch their lives. See, in our brokenness, in those moments, we can see the pain of others and we can empathize with them in a much greater way. But that only happens, here's the key, it only happens if we don't become self-centered in our own pain. That's the temptation. To begin to wallow in self-pity, to begin to look at ourselves, you know, and say, oh, what are they complaining about? Don't they know how bad I've got it? And to just completely miss what's going on around us because we're so caught up in our own circumstances that we don't see other people hurting. Here's what I know, and I don't remember who, who I first heard say this, but I, I think it's so true. God will never waste a hurt. He doesn't send every hurt. He doesn't cause those things. There are things that happen in a broken world, but I'm here to tell you, God will not waste it. He will use it in your life, and he will use that pain in your life to touch the lives of other people. Not only will he use those painful times to, in your life to mature you, uh, to teach you to trust him more fully and to strengthen you, but he'll also use those times to make us more sensitive to hurting people and, get this, also make us less, less judgmental when dealing with them. You know, how many of you ever walked through something and then after you did it, you thought to yourself, man, I will never judge somebody else for that. Like I, I, I had a friend in another church that we were pastoring. He He struggled after, he had a major surgery and, he ended up after that struggling with uh, severe depression. And he, he really fought it for a long time before, before the Lord helped him through it. But after that, he came to me, he said, he said Dave, I got to tell you, you know, I used to hear people talk about how they're struggling with it. And, and I was like, man, just, you know, pick yourself up and move. Just get over it. He said, I'll never do that again. He said, I've been through it now and now I know. This is real and it's painful. And that's what happens. God can make us more sensitive to the needs of others and less judgmental of them. When Joseph saw the sadness in these two men, 
You know what? He didn't look at them and say, you think you've got a lot to complain about. Listen to my tale of woe. Instead, Joseph said, hey, why, why are you guys so sad today? What's wrong? What's going on? So this shows Joseph's ability to, to think beyond his own immediate cares and needs in order to minister mercy to others. And I think the question for us is, are we aware of what is happening in the lives of people around us? Or do we get so caught up in our own self-centeredness? And, and, and listen, I'm not speaking about being a busybody. You know, some people are like, I want to know what's going on in everybody's life. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about an expression of genuine concern. And when that is, uh, when it, 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 it is obvious that, uh, that you see somebody going around you through a struggle, that, that you have that expression of concern, it's, it's so easy in today's busy world to get entirely occupied with our own challenges and our own difficulties and forget that there are many, many people around us who are suffering, or maybe they're just simply lonely. You know, one of our basic human needs is to be noticed. And Joseph, excuse me, and people know uh, if we're really interested in them or if, if our interaction with them is superficial, they need to hear a caring word. They need to hear an expression of interest in their well-being, whether that's emotional or physical or spiritual. It, 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 and listen, here's, here's, some of us avoid it because we're like, I just don't know how to help them. Listen, it's very possible, I may, sometimes I would even say likely, that you cannot solve their issues, but you can help bear the burden. You're not there to solve the issues. Jesus is the only one that can do those things. But he said we should bear one another's burdens. And when you're there for someone, when you care for them, when you express concern, when you call them, when you keep in touch with them, when you say, hey man, how are you doing? What you're doing is you're not solving the issue, but you are helping to bear the burden. Well, Joseph had apparently managed to rise so far above his own circumstances that he was aware, he was compassionately aware of what was going on in the lives of those around him. So Joseph noticed that the cupbearer and the baker were troubled and he asked them what was wrong. And they said, and this is of all people to say this to, it's just the irony is just off the charts. We have had dreams. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Of all people to say that to. They said, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. I bet Joseph just had to bite his lip a little bit. You know, if it had been me, I'd be like, brother, let me tell you about dreams. Leave those things alone. They get you in all kinds of trouble. You think it's bad now. You start worrying about dreams. You're in trouble there. But, but they were worried about a dream and, uh, that they'd had and they, and they could not interpret it. Little did they know that they had the dreamer of all dreams, dreamers in their midst. And, and when we talk about these dreams, I think it's we'll give you a little bit of background information for the culture. The dreams uh, in those in those ancient uh, societies could be very, very important. Uh, the dreams were that happened with these two men. They happened on the same night, which likely, along with the actual content of the dreams, suggested to them that the dreams had significance. So they both had the dream on the same night. And then when they started comparing them and they're like, three branches, three pies. Wait, wait a minute. I, there's a lot of similarities here. This got to mean something, but they had no way to understand it. And so uh, again, here we see uh, in, in this story, in Joseph's story, we saw with Joseph's dreams, as well as we will see with Pharaoh's dreams, 
that the dreams in this story come in pairs. Duplication showing reliability. I'm not saying that dreams from God always come in pairs. I'm just saying in this story, that's how it happened. And now there are two dreams again, only this time each person has their one separate dream and each dream has a meaning of its own. So while these two men were convinced the dreams had meaning, they were lamenting the fact that there was no interpreter for their dreams. Now, we need to understand a little bit of what that, that means there, because in, in, in Egypt, in, excuse me, in Egyptian dream interpretation, as, as the same, same during in the Mesopotamian region, a professional interpreter was needed who had access to dream commentaries. They, they did these studies, they had these things, and they said, well, when you dream about this, that means this. They had these commentaries that explained all these dreams and everything. And so the dreamer would then inform the, the interpreter of the content of the dream, and then the interpreter would do research in his commentaries to determine the meaning of the dream. That's what, it, what they did, that's what it meant. Uh, this was the same dynamic that was at play in Daniel chapter two, when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream which disturbed him. You remember that story? And he summoned all the wise men and he told them to, 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 to not only interpret the dream, but he said, I want you to tell me what the dream was and then interpret it. And that's why they responded with such disbelief that he asked for such a thing. They said in Daniel 2.10, there's no one earth who, on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. So they're saying, Nebuchadnezzar, that's not how it works. You tell us the dream, we do the research, and then we'll come back and tell you what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar was so upset that he orders the death of all the sages in his realm. And when Ariok comes to the place where Daniel and his other three friends are living, Daniel asks for some time to pray. And then we know God responds by telling Daniel the content of the dream as well as interpretation. And in this story, while the, the chief baker and the chief cup bearer do not withhold knowledge of the content of their dreams, Joseph immediately tells them, see, they're saying there's no professional dream interpreter. We, there's no way we're in prison. How can we possibly find out what they mean? We're, we're lost. That's why they're so dejected. We can't get to the people we need to get to because we're in prison. And Joseph looks at them and says, hey, 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 interpretations belong to God. That's what he tells them. He's saying, he's saying, hey, I, we don't need dream books to interpret these dreams. All we need is God. His response reveals to us three characteristics that we see time and time again in his life. Humility compassion and dependence on God because he did not say, hey, no problem, I got it, I'll tell you what it means. No, there was humility. He said, hey, this belongs to God. Interpretation belongs to God. And he had compassion because he's like, listen, this does matter. And then he showed dependence on God. He said, if this is gonna happen, it's gonna be because God does it. Joseph himself knew that he had no ability to interpret dreams but he was absolutely confident that God could do so, and he depended on him entirely. And Joseph, listen, that was such an important statement because by making this de declaration that the interpretation of dreams belonged to God, that essentially set it up to give God all the glory and all the praise. Because when he interpreted it, they weren't able to, they didn't look at him and say, Joseph, you're amazing. Because Joseph never claimed 
that he could do it. He said, this is, this is God's domain. So let's read about the dreams. Uh, Genesis 40, verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and clusters of ripened, uh, the, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. So the, the cupbearer says, hey, there was this vine that grew up, and it had three branches. It budded and blossomed and clusters produced ripe grapes, and I took the grapes, squeezed them out into the Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup in his hand. What in the world could that mean, Joseph? Verse 12, then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh would lift up your hand and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that, I sh that they should put me into the pit. So Joseph, uh, Joseph explained that the number three here represented a time interval. Speci specifically, he told him that the three branches he had seen meant that he, he would be restored to his position in, within three days. And then Joseph continues on after that with a simple request, which given the circumstances would be considered quite normal because Joseph asked the cupbearer to mention to Pharaoh the unjust treatment he had experienced. And there's no reason to think, there's no reason to take this as saying that Joseph was complaining. That's not what he was doing. He was just simply stating the truth. He was telling him the truth about his circumstances. First, that he had been wrongfully taken from his own land. And then that in, the, in this new land of Egypt, that there was nothing he had done to deserve being confined in this prison. See, here's what Joseph knew. It, some, you know, the more the world changes, there's some things that just never change. Joseph knew that sometimes an inmate got out of prison by knowing the right person. That's still true today. Yeah, that old saying, it's not, a, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And he knew that. And he also knew that there was nobody that was closer to Pharaoh than the chief cupbearer. So hopefully when the chief cupbearer returned to Pharaoh's presence and he had his ear again, he was hoping that he would say, Master, there's, there's a man you, you should look into. You should hear his story and you should look kindly toward him. And he says, Joseph says, keep me in mind when it, when it all goes well with you. That's a statement of faith already because he knows it's going to go well. He believes that. And Joseph said, remember me. Can't blame him for that. Well, in the meantime, the baker has been listening in on this conversation. And we know we're going to read it here in a moment, but he kind of like was encouraged by this. He's like, hey, that's pretty good interpretation. Let me see what mine means. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. What does that mean? He says, Joseph, what does that mean? Joseph, I could just picture him looking at him and say, well, buddy, this one's a little bit different. I got to tell you, it's a little different. And listen, you have to respect Joseph's integrity at this moment because Joseph knew that the dream meant that this guy was going to be killed. He was going to be executed. Who wants to deliver that message? Right? 
He could have in that moment just told the baker anything. He could have made up a lie he, 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 and, and the baker would never have known the distant, dis, difference or at least by the time he did know the difference, it wouldn't have mattered anyway. It'd been too late to worry about it. But Joseph was a man who told the truth. Joseph would have taken no pleasure in giving the, this interpretation to the baker, but he had to be honest and tell him the truth. You know why? Because Joseph was not winning friends. He was representing God. If he had lied about the dream and given the baker false hope, I mean, think about some of the potential consequences. Perhaps the cupbearer would have thought that Joseph just kind of got lucky when he interpreted his dream because, hey, after all, he missed so badly on, on uh, the baker's dream, so he was wrong there, so maybe he just guessed on mine and just got lucky. And, and maybe it was a result of that. And eventually, when Pharaoh was looking for a man who can interpret, de uh, interpret dreams, maybe he wouldn't have mentioned Joseph to him because he said, ah, oh, now he, he's probably a fake anyway. He got the other the guy's wrong. But this is what Joseph told the baker. Verse 18. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. So he's thinking, okay, well, this is similar. Maybe, what is he going to say next? In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. That sounds really good, except that he says, from you. <laughs> he's like, yeah, he's going to lift up your head, literally. Um, and hang you on a tree, which means he was going to be impaled. It's not hanging the way we think of it in, our, in the Western world. And he said, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Sadly, the news Joseph delivered was really the baker's death sentence. The three baskets are three days. And Joseph said, this means in three days you're going to be executed. Well, the news was very, very grim. But Joseph told him the truth. And being very practical for a moment or, or two, let's just remember that we are stewards of the gospel message. And the, the good news of God's salvation in, includes a side that is becoming in, increasingly un, unattractive in the culture in which we live. You know, people want to hear about the gospel of salvation, but, but here's the thing. If you use a word like salvation, you, you must be being saved from something. So there's a negative side to the gospel. There's a side that, that speaks about sin and death and judgment, and nobody wants to hear that anymore. I mean, sometimes even people who believe in God, they, they don't want to hear about sin and justice and condemnation and death. But the truth is, we will not be faithful servants to God. We would be unfaithful to the Word of God and, and unfaithful to the Lord Himself if we water down the message because without, the, 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 without the, the half that tells us about sin and judgment and death, then the good news of God's love means less. Because his, the fact that He loved me while I was a sinner, that makes His love that much more amazing. Well, Joseph didn't water anything down. He just told him the truth. And then the events involving both men came about precisely as jo Joseph had predicted. Verse 22. Verse, excuse me, verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. So three days later, both dreams were, were fulfilled on what we're told was Pharaoh's birthday. Now, little historical background there. there. There's no Egyptian evidence 
for a birthday celebration for Pharaoh until much later in the Persian period. But there are scholars who, who suggest that this day was, was not a celebration of his physical birth, but of his divine birth, because they thought Pharaoh, like many other cultures of that day, they thought that he was divine, they thought he was a god, and they would celebrate that at the festival accession of accession, where uh, basically they would be celebrating his coronation when he became God, in a sense like that. And so uh, what, whatever the exact occasion was, God's interpretation of the dreams as related by Joseph proved true. And the narrator says that the heads of both the cupbearer and the baker were lifted up on that day. For the cupbearer, it meant restoration to the, his position at court. For the baker, it meant beheading and impaling. Well, when the, re, the release came, when this happened, when, when it all took place in the predicted time, you know, we, we don't know, you know, Joseph probably didn't get a lot of news from outside the prison. So we don't know what he knew. He doesn't, he, you know, he may not have known exactly, uh, but he believed that he knew because he had interpreted these dreams and Joseph must have figured that, hey, they came and got these two men out of the prison in the, in the predicted time. So he must have figured that with God's help, he had given the correct interpretation of the dream. So he then began to just wait, hopefully, for his opportunity to be released, to be set free. Because he's like, hey, you know, I asked this cupbearer that when he gets back with Pharaoh, and I know he's there that, to tell Pharaoh about my story. And, and, and so he's... He must have thought, now's my chance. This guy has Pharaoh's ear. He'll get me out of here. Surely he must have expected the, the warden to come in one day soon announcing, well, Joseph, you've been set free. You're, you've been remembered and vindicated. It's not what happened. Verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. One more thing. Though he had done no wrong, though he had told only the truth, though he had specifically requested to be remembered, only silence prevailed. When nothing happened the next day or the next week or the next month or the next year, he must have become increasingly disappointed. Joseph was human. He dealt with the same emotions that you and I deal with. In fact, the first verse of chapter 41 says, and we'll get into it next week, says after two whole years, emphasis, there's, notice the emphasis, two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So instead of being remembered and rewarded, he was forgotten for two more years. You know what? Joseph's life was just a mosaic of people letting Joseph down. First his brothers, then it was Potiphar, and now it was the cupbearer. I mean, how could the cupbearer have forgotten Joseph's role in giving him hope? when he was in prison. Was Joseph wrong in thinking that God had 
providentially uh, uh, brought these men together and he was behind this meeting with the cupbearer under such circumstances that was he wronging thinking God must have brought him here this is my way out this is what God's going to do he's going to deliver me from this prison through this man God brought him here to this prison and gave me this opportunity all that had happened to him was unfair and unjust he had done nothing to deserve being in Egypt let alone being in an Egyptian prison and, and, and the silence of God became intense for Joseph. It must have been increasingly hard to take. The question asked in the Psalms much many, many years later must have been the same kind of question. It must have been his constant companion. How long, O oh Lord? How long? Here's the thing. We learn from this, God's timing is not always what we expect or desire, but it is always perfect. Think these things through. Pharaoh's dreams, two years later, which obviously prompted the memory of the man who had uh, interpreted dreams for the cupbearer and the, and the baker, and the, the cupbearer, all of a sudden his memory is spurred and, 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 and uh, uh, and he remembers the, this because of Pharaoh's dreams. But remember this, Pharaoh's dreams, we know, were sent by God, who was therefore responsible for their timing. That means that God was directly responsible for the two long years that Joseph had to wait from the time the cupbearer was reinstated. For, furthermore, it is clear, we know God could have prompted the cupbearer at any moment to put in a word for Joseph, the Pharaoh, uh, with, uh, with Pharaoh much earlier than that. He could have done that. God could have laid it on his heart. He could have reminded him. He could have gone to Pharaoh long before he ever had those dreams. But, but uh, the, th the fact is that might have brought Joseph out of prison. It might have brought him into freedom, but it certainly would not have taken him into a position of great influence and power. In fact, there's every reason to suppose that had Joseph been released, after the cupbearer was restored to his office, that Joseph would have fled the country. He would have gone back home. He would have gone back to his family. He would have been in Israel. He would have been with his family when the famine hit. He would never have been there when Pharaoh had his dreams. It was because of the divine timing of God that Joseph was able to come to Pharaoh and utilize the divine gift to interpret Pharaoh's dream and to initiate the process that would save many people. But, but, but there's something even more than that because you have to think this through even more. God could have sent the dreams to Pharaoh two years earlier. He sure could have, but he didn't. Why? Well, perhaps the answer lies in the reference to Joseph in Psalm 105. The psalmist writes, then he, speaking of God, then he sent someone to Egypt ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with fetters and placed his neck in an iron collar. Listen to verse 19. Until the time came to fulfill his dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character. Joseph's integrity had certainly been tested in the encounter with Potiphar's wife. Could it be, could it be that, that maybe he was being tested in a different way by having to wait? 
Maybe this was what he was remembering. He was remembering the stories that he heard of his great-grandfather Abraham who waited for 25 years, who had a promise from God, and yet he held on and just waited and waited and waited and never gave up and continued to believe that God was going to keep his word. Maybe that was part of the process of Joseph growing in this thing. Maybe that was part of the anchor that helped him to hang on. And he said, I know God's given me this dream. I don't see how it's going to come about, but I believe God. I'm not going to quit on him. I'm going to believe believe that what he said and I just have to wait now admittedly waiting is a completely alien idea to a generation that we live in taught to expect instant gratification we like everything now we like microwave popcorn you know we we go through a drive-thru we we want fast food if we're in the drive-thru for more than two minutes we're like what's wrong with these people it's like it's been two minutes Yet waiting on the Lord is a thoroughly biblical notion. Isaiah 40, 31. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. He wants us to learn to wait. It's in the waiting that we gain strength. It's in the waiting that our faith grows. In fact, if we never have to wait, we never need faith. And waiting is the hardest when you're suffering. How long, oh God? Many of the Psalms express that that very sentiment. Many of the major characters in Scripture had to wait, sometimes an inordinately long time to see the fulfillment of the promises that God had made to them. Like I mentioned, Abraham, David had to wait. You can go down the line and see so many of them that had to wait. What, what is clear from Scripture, what we see, what we know, is that waiting builds character. I, I should modify that. Waiting builds character when we wait patiently in faith. Because you can wait impatiently. Right? I'm not building my character if I do that. The Lord allows us to pass through learning experiences so that our patience and our perseverance grow. They, they may not be experiences that, that we would have chosen. In fact, I can't think of a single one of those kinds of times in my life that I would have even possibly conceived of saying, yes, that's what I want. Give me some pain. I, would, I choose pain. I, I'm not going to choose that. I'm going to, if it's up to me, I'm going to choose the easy path, but it's not in the easy path where I grow. But those experiences are for our good. And they're also for God's glory. Paul writes in Romans 5, 3, not only so, but we also boast in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces patience. Or some translations say perseverance. The two words are very much interchangeable. James teaches something similar. In James 1, 3, and 4, the trying of your faith develops patience, but let patience perfect its work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God allowed these difficult moments to mature Joseph, to grow him up, to build his character. And that's part of allowing patience to have its perfect work is to wait patiently, to endure the hardships and to, and to hold on to God in faith. The, the timing of all of this in Joseph's life was in God's control. 
as was the trial itself. Maybe, though, maybe Joseph clung to the fact that since the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker had come true, so also would his own. You know what? It takes real character to distinguish between God's no and God's not yet. It's easy to, to, to not get what you want or what you believe God is, is, has for you immediately and say, oh, God said no and give up. It takes character to say, no, no, I know God said this. He hasn't done it yet, so that must mean that it's a not yet. And this remarkable man, victimized again and again and again, continued to wait, to trust, to hope, to lean on God. There's a clear connection between endurance and character and reliance on God that we see in Joseph's life the long wait in prison contributed to the depth of character that he would need to cope with high administrative responsibility. He needed massive character to deal with the massive power that was coming. Not only that, that's to say nothing of the resources he was going to need for the process of being reconciled to his brothers. Listen to me. Every victim of mistreatment, every person going through a heartache, every person dealing with issues, whether you're in this room or on the live stream, turn your trial into trust as you look to God to tenderly use that affliction, that dungeon experience, that abandonment to use it for His purpose and for His glory. If Joseph could survive those years of mistreatment, and loneliness and loss, I am absolutely confident that with God's help, you can too. In the midst of all of this, remember God has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. He never left. He never left. He understands the heartache that's brought on by the evil which He mysteriously permits. Why do bad things happen to good people? We, we don't know. That's because God's doing something that we don't understand. And, and, and he understands the heartache that comes from that, that type of activity. But, but he allows those things so that he would bring it, be able to bring us into a tender, sensitive walk with him. My prayer is that he will do for you what he did for Joseph. May God give you the grace to endure. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray for any person that is hearing this tonight or is watching it on the live stream or maybe watches a recording of it later that's going through. You brought them to this very message, this very Bible study because they're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. They're walking through that dungeon experience. And God, there's some that may feel as if they're abandoned. They, they, the, the silence of God has become deafening to them. And God, they don't understand it. But God, I pray that this message, let this study, let Joseph's life become a source of strength and encouragement to them as they begin to look at themselves and say, wait a minute, God is still with me. He's doing something. I may not understand it. I may not be able to figure it out, but I know he's at work and I know that he is here and he's going to see me through. And in the same way that he gave Joseph the strength to endure, I know that he will give me the grace to endure. I pray God that you would do just that. 
Give grace where grace is needed. Give strength where strength is needed. Give peace where peace is needed. And may all of us, God, learn that in our dungeon experiences, learn to just patiently wait in faith on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.